Well, hey, hey, folks, it is another episode of Exponential's Frontlines uh, podcast, and we are uh, really excited to be back. Hey, hey, dude, it's been like a month since you and I have been on the same show. It I has think. been a while. I was gone a week when you were with uh, Tommy and, and Brianna. That's right. And then the week before that, I was, uh, dude, I had a really good time with Jesse Cruikshank. I'm not gonna I lie. No, I. You know, I've I've done a podcast with her before, so I was really sorry. She is fascinating and she, smarter than you and I put together. Oh my gosh! I mean, <laughs> Harvard and brain science—that's yeah. that's pretty amazing. And then we were with Aubrey Samson, and she just she had so much gold, so much fire. We were talking about really just the whole idea of like walking through dark seasons. That was really really helpful and uh, wow. great feedback from that. So. But dude, I'm glad to be back. Glad to be doing Frontlines again. You know, our focus is on uh, really you pastors and church leaders that are in the trenches leading ministries uh, in this crazy time. Obviously, the pandemic, a lot of social tensions as well. Uh, so we care for you. We think about you all the time. Uh, that's why we do this. And so, you know, hey, Peyton, really quick before we introduce our topic and our guests today, because I want to make sure we, we create a lot of time for, for our guests to really talk about their research um, I was thinking about uh, catching up, man. I mean, what have you been up to? You uh, you finished a textbook, uh, which we need to just do a podcast about the books yeah. that we're writing right now. But how you know what what was that like? Do you feel better that that thing's finally done? Yeah, you know, I I've written this will be my third published book. Um, yeah. I've got a bunch that kind of hide out like ninjas in the shadows, but um, yeah. So uh, I never want to do it again. Um, I wrote 800 pages on a 250 page contract. It got cut down to four. So I think I wrote two textbooks, but uh, one will see the light of day. We'll see if uh, textbook rides again or son of textbook ever appears. But uh, I don't recommend it. But I know one day you're going to write something because uh, I know you're finishing up your uh, your doctorate, brother. And yeah. I'm, I'm just well, you know, cheering I, you on, man. I just submitted my first draft to InnoVarsity on a book that I'm working with Matt Sorens and Eric Stanzo. And, wow. uh, and that, that is, uh, we hope that it'll, it'll, uh, publish, uh, in the fall. So we just nice, need to do a whole, man. we'll do a whole episode about what God is teaching us and why we need to write our thoughts down. But well, just I can't wait to read it because your, your articles in your blogs and what I have read your writing is so good. And I'm not just saying that cause you're my co-host and ball, right. but, uh, if you do want to check out church plantology, it drops on April 20th and we will do a show on that. Yep. But, uh, all right. Cool. Well, you know, I, Thanks, I, ta I taught a, uh, a, a doctorate in ministry class in church planting last week. And if I had your book, it, we would have used it. I taught you it with were Craig with Ott. Craig Ott. That dude Craig is Ott. awesome. His book, when I was writing my book, I remember reading his going, I don't know, man, reading this book, Global Church Planting. Maybe I didn't need to write a book because <laughs> no, that book is good. so fire. Oh we 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 enjoy discussing it, and he said your writing style is just so it's it's down to earth. It's needed. Uh, the fact that it's an academic book, uh, I think it's going to be received well, man. So, Good. and that I mean, I'm I'm just thinking about you know those uh, pastors and church leaders that are listening. Sometimes we think that ac academia is just like you know just so way up there. Uh, but I mean, I mean, you're a practitioner, Peyton. Like you're on the ground. You're planting, you're coaching, uh, you are, uh, you know, in the trenches, you know, front lines. Um, and yet there's something about the way you and I, we've had this conversation before, and this would be a great segue to, to introduce our guests. But there is something about the way that there's a disconnect between um, the guild, academic guild, 
and the you know, actual place of ministry. And there are a few people like you and I where we're trying to bridge that gap as much as possible. And uh, part of that is the, the need for research. I mean, research is important. Uh, sometimes you can get stuck on the front lines and you're banging your heads and you're, you're just so focused on what's in front of you. When sometimes you need to step back and you need a better you know, field depth perspective on what's actually happening. And that's why we've got uh, Josh Packard with us today. He's the executive director of Springtide. And we're talking about their recent report, uh, The State of Religion and Young People 2020, which is a fascinating, uh, fascinating report. The first, um, their first release that came out, I think in the fall, uh, was about a 90-page summary of their findings. I think they've got a part two that's coming out soon that Josh will talk about. So, but hey, uh, uh, Josh, I'm just going to call you Josh. Is that okay? Or should I call you Dr. Packard? Please call me Josh. <laughs> we're uh, we're really uh, excited to have you on, and uh, I, I just you know give you a chance to share a little bit of your background, uh, what's Springtide, and then as as you're giving some content, folks, if you have questions, uh, like always, drop them in the chat, and then Brooks will get them over to us towards the end of our time together. We're going to field as many of your questions as possible. But Josh, tell us a little bit about Springtide. Tell us about your work, and then you know jump into some of the findings that you guys have in the state of religion and young people. Yeah, thanks, thanks both uh, to both of you for having me on. This is this is a really great opportunity to get to chat about this, and uh, this is exactly the kind of conversation that Springtide we want to be a part of. We um, very succinctly, you know, we we conduct research uh, into the lives of thirteen to twenty five year olds, um, and but but I think we share Daniel and, and Peyton that same. Uh, heart for for doing translating work. I mean, I've, I've been academic. I'm finishing up my last semester as a professor, moving over to Springtide full time. But I, while I think it's really important for academics to talk to each other and have those conversations, it's never really been my calling. I've always felt like there was just way too much good information locked up in the academy that, that needed to get out into the hands of, of people who could use it. And so that's what we try to do at Springtide. We do our own research, but we're constantly working to communicate that in ways that are actionable. I tell my team all the time, uh, we don't want to be interesting. We want to be useful. So that is the goal here with the research um, is to try and just try and put forward something that's useful. As you mentioned, we had in this past fall, the state of religion and young people 2020 come out. We'll do that. We'll do that study or an updated version of that study every single fall. So this, this fall, you'll see the state of religion, and young people, 2021, it'll have a different focus, but we're asking a lot of the same questions and people can, uh, can come along and sort of see what's up with young people as they think about their religious lives, both inside, outside of institutions, even if they don't call it religion, if they call it spirituality, or if they don't have a name for it at all, we're, we're trying to go wherever they're asking life's most important questions and hang out with them um, in some really intentional and strategic research ways and find out what they're saying. So uh, that's, I, I think that's, uh, yeah, that's basically who I am. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And I, I know you're going to dig into some of your findings from that report and Brooks is going to drop it in the chat. So um, as you all are listening to Josh, you can go back and download the report a little bit later. But before you jump into the um, uh, report, Josh, I mean, I'm sure you, give us a sense in which, like, what were you trying to capture? And, yeah. you know, what's the lead up work to why actually doing the research around it? Well, I think there's, um, especially as we think about this from the perspective of religious leaders and, and youth ministers, you know, there's a lot of really, they're almost, you could almost make the argument that youth ministers are over-resourced and under-frameworked, you know, in terms when it comes to information, that there's just, there's a lot of, I don't know, you get stuff from Pew or Barna or Gallup or whatever, and there's a lot of really good stuff out there, um, but it doesn't always come with a, 
you know, something that's usable from a solid grounding standpoint. So what we, we felt like was a, you know, we didn't want to be thinking about religious lives of young people through a particular congregational lens or even a particular uh, denominational lens or faith lens. We wanted to really let young people drive that conversation. But then when we speak, uh, you know, when we give advice, when we speak normatively or use the word should, we always do it from a position of the social sciences. So if, if young people are telling us that like adults don't listen and they're really dismissive and we want to, you know, like let adults know how they can be better listeners in the life. Well, we turn to the communication theory and we go right into that. And we, then we translate it out to like, here's, here's how you can show up productively in the life of a young person, hopefully in a way that allows different religious groups to bring their theology to that conversation. Um, so that, you know, it leaves room for those people to be experts in what they're in and us to not have to pretend to be uh, experts in Galatians or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, Michael Emerson, who's a sociologist, he's also uh, an evangelical, mm-hmm. and uh, he says, you know, it really is, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, reading the Bible in one hand and reading the newspaper in the other, and yeah. I think that's, uh, that's really helpful. So, well, hey, uh, why don't you go ahead and dig in, and, uh, you know, again, our, our listeners, they tend to be pastors, they're leading churches, and you can make the translation as you're listening to some of Josh's findings. Yeah, great. I'm going to, well, I'll go ahead and share screens here and let's see if we can get this thing rolling. Um, I like your background there. Work hard and be nice. Yes. It's a different parts of that are a challenge on different days, right? (laughs) (laughs) Lord, I could be nicer to people if they just weren't so stupid. (laughs) That that makes it a lot easier. (laughs) Uh, While you're getting that going, I'll just say that, uh, Working hard, man. Who could outwork the Apostle Paul, right? How does that look? Can y'all see the state of religion and young people slide there? Yep, looks great. Yeah, All man, right, we great. got it. Um, so you see some content. If anybody's interested, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Josh Packard. You can email me at josh at springtideresearch.org. We're always happy to hear from folks that are using the stuff that we're trying to put out um, and make a difference in the world. Very succinctly, Springtide, this is sort of our condensed mission statement. We believe no young person should have to navigate life's most important questions alone. So we conduct actionable research to reflect the inner and outer lives of 13 to 25-year-olds in order to help those who care about young people care better. And that's very, very succinct. And, and you, like you're the ones that care about young people. We do too, but we want to help you be able to do that in a way that is really rooted in some good science and some good uh, data. When we talk about the story of young people right now, I think the dominant narrative that we face a lot of the church is how can we get young people back? And um, that's a useful conversation to have maybe in 2009. Um, largely what we're seeing is that young people haven't left. They weren't there in the first place. We're increasingly raising a generation collectively as a country that aren't particularly familiar with institutional vocabularies or attendance or even experiences. Uh, When I last taught the sociology of religion, we go on field trips, we go to a mosque, we go to a synagogue, we go to churches. Over half of my class uh, had never been inside of any kind of uh, religious institution, religious body, religious gathering. It was their first time in a mosque. It was their first time in a synagogue. And it was their first time in a Christian church. And that's a distinct change, even just in the 15 years that I've been teaching that course. And I think we, we, in, we, we can tell the story. We can get caught up, I think, in, in churches of telling the story where the church is the center, uh, central player in the story. And that makes sense. That's the world that we live in. So we tend to tell it from that perspective. But the sociologist in me sort of, I think it's incumbent that we take a bigger 
a wider lens view because there's a different story that's going on uh, in society in general that is really critical to understanding what's happening in the church. So here's what I mean. Uh, Gallup and Pew and others have been tracking trust in social institutions now for quite some time. And the trend that we see from starting in roughly the late 60s, early 70s is this like really steady decline in trust in social institutions uh, across all age groups. Now at Springtide, much of most of the data you see in the world goes down to 18. At Springtide, we we collect all of our data, surveys and interviews and, and others from all the way down to 13. And so this is our data. We asked 13 to 25 year olds, can you uh, rank or you know give us on a scale of one to 10, how much you trust these institutions? And you see nonprofits right there at the top. Now, of course, your head probably goes right there to organize religion in the middle. Um, just ahead of, uh, or just behind public schools and ahead of the media. But the really critical thing to understand about this is that it's a 10 point scale. It's, this is the, 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 the fact that church or organized religion might be just a tick below the, the midpoint isn't the story here. The story is that young people don't trust any institutions all that much. That's the story that matters. And that's really what gets us into the ways that our world has changed. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but I do want to give you some sense of this because I think the diagnosis matters uh, in some really critical ways for understanding how we move forward. All right. So if we go into the Wayback Machine uh, to my grandfather's generation, life, social life especially, was relatively simple, organized around um, a few dominant social institutions, clubs, churches, schools, where you worked, et cetera. And it's not just that those are the places that you interacted with. It's that those were the places that formed your identity in a very willing way. Uh, my grandfather wore his gold watch from the company that he worked for. Um, in fact, you could argue that these like lived inside of us and sort of made us who we were. Um, and some pretty important and key aspects. And we were not ashamed or afraid to, necess to, to identify with them externally uh, either, to tell our friends. In fact, it was a point of status, the institutions that would have us as one of their uh, members, as an employee or as a volunteer or whatever. And that world makes sense. So in that world, all we have to do is align ourselves with one of those institutions or a combination of them and we automatically get some authority over the people that identify with that institution. I think even as recently as when I was a student um, in college, you know, if, my, if, if somebody affiliated with my university, certainly a professor, told me to do something, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to do that thing. Even if they wanted to give me advice about my life, I would just sit and listen to it and probably take it seriously. I can assure you that that is not what my students do now <laughs> as I wrap up my last semester. They will listen to me, but not because I'm a professor at the university where they're paying money. That world, I think, has fundamentally changed. The modern world is significantly more complex with a lot more institutions competing for people's time and attention. And these things don't necessarily, we don't necessarily identify whole hog with one of them. In fact, in part because we don't trust them, we take bits and pieces from lots of them to construct what it means to be me. There is no gold watch affiliated with one institution that will sort of signify and wrap up everything about who I am. And this is more true for young people um, than any other generation. Now, the reason why the diagnosis matters is because the church is not immune from the same kinds of strategies that we see other organizations employ. And what happens in other organizations when things are not going well what do they do? Well, they want to go back to doing the things that they did when things were going well. And I think that makes a ton of sense. You want mission clarity in the for-profit world, you call it getting back on brand. Um, 
But in this, in this way, when like that strategy only works if we can reasonably assume that the world hasn't changed. But when the world has changed and we go back to doing the things that we were doing before, it's not only the case that they don't work as effectively as they once did, we can actually find ourselves moving backwards. And I think that's where we are at largely now. In this new reality of a, a much more complex world, Gen Z is the most diverse generation that, that we've ever seen. Uh, the institutional world is more complicated and trust is lower. Well, the more you align yourself with an institution, the less authority that you're going to get uh, in, the, in the life of a person. So when we look backwards to point the way forwards, uh, we're losing ground all the time. I think what this calls for is a radical reshifting of how we think about ministry with young people. Let me give you some concrete data to show you exactly what I mean. So we used to use these categories of affiliated and unaffiliated, and we use those categories always as proxies, right? That like if somebody was affiliated, if they checked the box on the survey that said, you know, Christian, Protestant, Christian, Catholic, Jewish, whatever, then we could assume some things about their behavior and identity. We could reasonably, we could reasonably try and get my dog out of my office. How about that? So he's not barking at me. That is a reasonable request. That's pretty awesome. You're like the new BBC guy. Crazy. At least, Um, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> sat there quietly the whole day. Yeah, at least he didn't have his cone of shame coming at you. That would have been awesome. <laughs> Your dog was just excited about this point you're making because uh, there, there's a lot of sense in what you're talking here, brother. Well, thanks. Um, they, these proxies used to be uh, really, I think, not just interesting, but useful, and they're not anymore. So when we look inside that data, we actually see as much variability within these categories of affiliated and unaffiliated as we do between them. Let me show you what I'm talking about. 52% of affiliated young people, again, people who are telling us that they're Baptist or Catholic or whatever, half of them just over say that they have little to no trust in organized religion. Half of them. How is it that you claim and I, they don't trust it at all? 33% of affiliated young people attend religious services once a year or less. One in five tell us they are affiliated with a religious tradition, but they're not a religious person. And over one in five tell us that they don't try to live out their religious beliefs in their daily lives, even though they claim a religious affiliation. I think what you see here is this very muddled picture of what it means to claim a religious identity, that, that we can't simply assume that we know things about a young person's faith life based on their attendance, uh, based on whether they say they're affiliated. It really calls for us to rethink those categories. And the same thing is true for the unaffiliated. Some of these numbers are, I don't know, sort of astonishing. I mean, I've, still, I've given this presentation, I've talked about this data, I've, you know, we wrote the book, but it's still kind of eye-opening when you see that 38% of unaffiliated young people say that they are religious. They just do not want to check the box, right? 60% say they're slightly spiritual. One in 10 say they've become more religious over the last five years. And I think when we put these things together, what we see actually is is somewhat, uh, from a religious practitioner standpoint, encouraging. For me, this is an expansion of the playing field. I mean, when we see those numbers about the decline of uh, uh, religious affiliation, which in our sample of 13 to 25-year-olds, it's up to 40%, that can be discouraging if you think that that number, or, or that category rather, of unaffiliated means that they're not interested in religious conversation, that they're not interested in what you have to say, that they're avoiding um, asking the kinds of questions that are core to a spiritual life or, or religious life, but they're not. 
And I think once we see this, these data, we can begin to understand that, that there's a whole lot of people out there who we might have been assuming aren't interested in the conversation that we're having that actually are open to it. And, and they're not going to, I mean, I think we see pretty clearly, they're not going to walk into your building and ask you to have that conversation. That is, that is very, very clear. But they do want the you part of that equation. They're just not so interested in the institutional part of that equation. In fact, what the what our research showed was that affiliation wasn't the most revealing thing. It was actually when we started looking at what determines religious behavior, it was all about relationships. Unfortunately, not all young people have the kind of relationships that they can count on. 27% uh, of young people have one or fewer adult in their life they can turn to if they need to talk. And that includes their parents. So it's a fourth to a third, depending on the age group, that has one or fewer trusted adult in their life, including their parents. But 40%, 41% depend on a close relationship to help them find meaning and purpose in their life. Uh, this last box down here uh, on the bottom is, I think, particularly eye-opening. This is a check-all that applied. They could have picked every single person on this list. And we asked them, who could you turn to? Uh, if you need them. And th uh, what is that? 8% pick a religious leader uh, that they have. Now, I think what's, for me, what's really important here is that I don't think it's objectively true, right? I think that there are, we hear all the time, we do focus groups with, with religious leaders, with youth ministers. Um, I hear in presentations like this and in audiences all the time, the number of trusted adults and religious leaders and youth ministers who are out there who really want to connect with kids and young people um, but we also hear young people telling us that they don't have trusted adults in their lives. I think what's happening is that this is largely a perception issue that they don't have adults they could turn to. But critically, and this comes from my field of sociology, there's this famous saying, you know, that which people perceive as real is real in its consequences. And this is definitely an accurate reflection of how young people feel. They don't see adults as having their best interests in mind. What they see is adults who are connected to institutions having the institution's best interests in mind. And we have to undo that if we're going to make any relational progress with them. And this is 100% the most critical thing that we can be doing right now today um, is fostering this sense of belonging because belonging precedes believing. This is one of the oldest lessons in sociology it goes back to the very first studies that were done. And it's been confirmed over the last century over and over again in different settings. We get this backwards in the church a lot. Political parties also get it backwards a lot. We can make some short-term gains by getting people to sign on to a statement of belief um, by, by you know, making this really hard line and saying like, you got to check these boxes before you can get in. But if what you really want is like durable, flourishing faith lives that can survive a pandemic or going to college or moving to a new city for a job or getting married. Well, we need that group commitment first. That sense of belonging that people feel is what's going to keep them connected through those transitions, through those inevitable bumps in the roads, which are, of course, even more likely to happen for 13 to 25-year-olds than they are for adults, um, even though, of course, they, they do happen for adults as well. So how? How do we do this? Well, um, as I mentioned at Springtide, we try to we try to ask questions and design research that can shed light not into just what is happening, but then what we can do about it. Uh, I, I think it's really critical that we replace all those institutions and in people's lives with actual people. We we actually thought that the uh, we we thought we were like asking the wrong kinds of questions uh, or not not sort of um, uh, asking them in the right way because early on in our research for this. 
we were asking young people where they felt a sense of belonging. Where did they feel a sense of connection? And then we had to have a research team meeting because we just weren't getting answers about where and realized that we were sort of thinking about it the wrong way. Because every time we asked a where question, the young person in the interview would turn it back into a who answer. They, they didn't feel a sense of belonging to any place, even if they have attendance. We cover that in, in our book, Belonging, that attendance does not equal belonging. It's the who that matters. And we've got to get, a, we've got to, get to a place where it's the who that lives in their hearts. These are the stories that they would tell us you know, when they talk to us about why they attended something or why they went somewhere, or what had a major impact on their lives, it always came back to people. It, we've not had a young person yet tell us about a really important program or a really great sermon that they heard. It was all relational. <laughs> Without going too far down the academic rabbit hole here, uh, what's needed is this, uh, is this framework of relational authority. So critically, young people were able to tell us not just um, how they wanted, uh, not just that they wanted adults to be trusted um, partners in their lives, but, but exactly how they wanted them to show up. Um, and this sort of combines some of the sort of like what made up our communities in this pre-industrial era and what has made up our community and authority in this last 150 years, meshing into this system that we call relational authority. And there's five components, listening, transparency, integrity, care, but it really importantly, if you do those four things, what young people told us is that they tended to see you, they tended to see you as um, maybe a friend, um, maybe a buddy, somebody who was trying to uh, sort of hang out with them, but not as somebody that could be trusted because what they really needed to come in there was also expertise. If you lead with expertise alone, they see you as just sort of like having the institution's best interest in mind. You know, the old adage, if they don't know how much you care, they won't care how much you know. Um, but the same is true, too. If you just do the four sort of relation things without the authority part, they're, they're not super interested in that. They want adults who can be coaches, mentors, guides, who, can who have some expertise and can help them figure things out in their lives. Um, the, but they don't want them to be just be friends. They told us that time and time again, they have, they have friends. And sometimes their friends are the cause of a lot of drama that they need help figuring out, right? Now, when we can do this, and in the book, we dive into some of the exact ways to, to listen in the ways that young people see as listening, uh, to be transparent in ways that are important to young people, et cetera. But you remember this chart here about trust in institutions, right? And when we come, and, and how organized religion still comes up a little bit short, um, of others and short on the overall scale. But when we ask young people about trust in those relational aspects, we see a much different story emerging. In fact, we see trust levels that are, uh, you know, sort of almost off the charts. I mean, up to 90% for people who exhibit particular um, aspects of, of relationships. <clears throat> in fact, you see that bottom number there, relational authority overall. If you can combine all five of these, then you're going to then you're going to have a durable, lasting impact uh, in terms of undoing that mistrust that young people have for institutions and funneling it into trust um, for the institute for you and the institution you represent. Simply by replacing the sort of institutional authority with relational authority. So I'm going to stop there with the data. I'm going to make one before we stop sharing uh, screens here. I'll just I'll let you uh, in on what's coming up next week. Literally, uh, we're going to be uh, Monday, Tuesday, I think. Um, 
we're going to be releasing a one year into COVID study. We got a couple of thousand surveys that we put together, eight ways to care for Gen Z in the post-pandemic world. The findings are already eye-opening. For me, the, the biggest one there is that over half of Gen Z tell us that they'll feel pressure to move on when the pandemic is over, but not ready to do that. And so I think it has critical implications, and we spell this out, uh, critical implications for ministers, and this, we spell this out in the uh, in the new normal and, and some exercises and empathy that you can engage in. Uh, you can go and sign up to get it right now. Uh, there's some fancy animation because it's actually free. It's just like the state of religion and young people is uh, also free this year to download a digital version. All right, that's Great. what I got. Josh, uh, amazing. Um, and I, I wanted to just uh, affirm again. I mean, I, I've I've gone through the uh, the full report that came out in the fall. Uh, there's a lot of additional data that Josh just wasn't able to get to. Uh, it's a it's a full blown huge report, but so much already that you uh, you got as uh, there. Hey, Josh, um, jump. We're going to jump in with some Q and A, but I wanted to uh, touch back with you really quick on you were talking about behavior, uh, belonging, and believing, and I think in some yeah. ways, you know, pastors the pastors have a sense of what that uh, may mean you know, um, can you dig into, you know, cause you're coming at it from a sociologist perspective. You know, I think from a pastor's perspective, when we say believe, we, we want to see people cross a certain threshold yeah. and that determines membership in a lot of ways, mm. you know, um, as a sociologist, you may be saying, say, saying something a little bit different, uh, that may be in, in terms of the perspective of a church leader, they've been thinking about this somewhat different. Yeah. You believe where you belong. So can you unpack that just a little bit? Yeah, well, I think it's actually, this is one of the places where it's, it's, uh, it is really important to, to couple the social science here with the, um, with the, with a, with a religious understanding. And so when we think about like, what do we think about when we think about teenagers? Like if you ask a 14 year old, what they're going to be when they grow up, nobody expects them to actually be center fielder for the Yankees uh, or whatever 14 year olds say. Um, we're interested in that conversation because we care about the 14 year old, but, but we're not holding them to that. We don't expect that who they're dating at 19 is who they're going to be dating at 21. My students, you know, change their major three times a year often. Um, but for some reason, even though we recognize that the dominant experience of being a young person is one of exploration and change and that their identities and lives are not static. When it comes to religion though, we tend to throw all that out the window. And we think that if you've made a commitment, if you've been through a confirmation class, if you've been saved or born again, or whatever the terminology is in your tradition, then that's it. We're good. Things are great for the rest of life. Like we, we don't, we don't think that that's going to go necessarily backwards or sideways or being renegotiated or rethought. But it's in, that's an inconsistent understanding with everything else that we know about young people. So I think it is really important that when we think about belief, we think about it as dynamic and not just having crossed this threshold of like, oh, they believe now, done, right? As if it can't modulate or fluctuate or, or even that we shouldn't expect it to. I mean, I think it, that's probably actually more the norm than anything else. Well, hey, I, I appreciate that so much, and your um, your whole presentation. Like, it's it's really in interesting to me to think about people's connection to institutions. Anyways, I think it, not just young people, mm -hmm. but you know, I'm I'm part of Generation X, and Generation X, we we're kind of funny about it. Mm -hmm. You know, we we we're not 
typically uh, very institutional, and I think society is very much reflecting that. This is what happens when our generation turns 50, right? This is what the world looks like. We kind of screwed that up. But I think we have a general distrust of organizations. We kind of ask that question, are you out for yourself? Are you out for God? Are you out for me? And I don't believe you're you're going to be able to do all three very well. Mm. And so, um, you know, here's the thing. Um, our audience have written this, your resource there. Somebody asked, do you feel these ideas and practices translate to many yeah. institutions, say secondary and higher education? In other words, is this a good resource for anyone who works with young people outside of the religious sector? Yeah, so we don't see, I mean, I've been teaching and thinking a lot about religious, uh, about uh, relational authority now for years. The, the data that we have here was asked in a religious context, and so I want to be faithful to that, but I, I don't see any particular reason why it wouldn't translate over to other social institutions. I mean, the, the key component here is that you know, I, I think this is the pathway forward to rebuilding trust when institutional trust is low. And we certainly see low institutional trust in education settings. Um, you know, I, I think it, I, 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 this might be crass, but I think this can work in for-profit settings. Um, when we think about how to, when you think about the companies that do a really good job of building these loyal followings and, and gaining trust among their consumers, even, I think you'll see them exhibiting a lot of these same kinds of features. Yeah, you know, Josh, I mean, uh, we spent a long time thinking about millennials and, uh, you know, a lot of the folks that you've, you're surveying in, in your research here were probably uh, in the Gen Z spectrum. And yeah. oftentimes we can tend to uh, over uh, stereotype or generalize behaviors amongst uh, age cohorts. Yeah, but I, you know, I, I bring this up because I think this is kind of important for you, know, you pastors and leaders, who you pioneered and you lead a church that had a particular uh, bent and tradition from Boomer and uh, you know, kind of like uh, early Xers, um, and, and there's a lot of research where at least there's there's been some reports on like from the Boomer and Xer generations where. Uh, you know, you might leave church uh, at the age of 18, 19, 20, you get married, you have kids, and you start returning in your 30s. My mm-hmm. understanding is that we don't have the same kind of trends with the younger generation. Can you talk no, about I, that really quick? Yeah, we don't see, I mean, I, that, that, that pattern, which was well established for a long time, as you mentioned, is, is sort of falling apart. And the, and, and I think what's happening, and we're, this is a lot of what we're going to be writing about for State of Religion Young People 2021 later this fall, is the, where, where you could sort of, I think, make the case that millennials and, and even Gen X, uh, to think broadly uh, in these categories, we're doing a lot of deconstructing work um, and, and, uh, and in some really great and important ways, a lot of stuff around equity and race and gender that we're, you know, re-examining those relationships to those core religious teachings and other institutional affiliations. But we don't see that yet with, uh, with Gen Z. In fact, the metaphor, I think that is much more useful to, under, to help understand Gen Z, even though Gen Z, again, it's the most diverse generation in the country ever. So that's the, that's the key to understanding them. But if they do have something in common, it's that they're, they are builders. They're sort of looking around at the, the, the sort of detritus of the deconstruction, you know, eras from their parents. And they're, 
thinking to themselves like, how do I, in this landscape of pieces of things that have been taken apart, how do I put a faith life back together? So a lot of times, like when we're doing interview, we did, we did 10,000 surveys and 150 interviews for State of Religion 2020. And what we heard them saying in these interviews was, you know, they're, they're like, they were very clearly just trying to make sense of the various pieces that were laying around. We're talking yoga, meditation, the sacraments, prayer, you know, all these sort of parts of religions, but not, I don't know if you, you know, this goes way back like in the early eighties, Robert Bella coined this term called Sheilaism about these like very individualized faiths that were particular to a person. But what we saw young people really trying to do and construct was, was sort of almost a collective where, you know, how do we collectively find our way through this? It, unfortunately though, I think they're doing it largely on their own. I mean, I don't, I don't think that religious leaders are doing a very good job of meeting them in those spaces and those conversations, both literally and figuratively to help them sort of do that work. So one, one of the things that, that, you know, Daniel and I uh, were talking about was this new generation coming up. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, you feel like they're going to be awesome church planners, but you know, we do have denominations. We do have institutions. Um, obviously, an institution denomination wants to keep itself going. Sure. And church planning can be a means to an end to that. Um, so so there can be a suspicion with young people like, ah, you want me to church plant because you want me to go plant your flag yeah. on the moon somewhere. And, you know, but I'm not about that. You're, you're telling us that the, these young people and I, you know, quite frankly, I'm not about that either. But you know, here's the deal. They're, they're looking to advance the kingdom of God. How do you see them or, or how do you see a network or a denomination being able to work with them to overcome? Like, what are some steps yeah. that an institution or a network or a denomination or even a church for that matter can, can take to work with young people with this mindset? That's an, uh, that is obviously a really important question. And I, I would hesitate to say that we have the answer for that, but here's the, here's the answer that I think is emerging pretty clearly for me. Um, this gives a little peek into the data we're collecting for this year is that the, where in that, in the sort of old model institutionally driven world, you know, what we were trying to do is really get people um, to try and convince them to use a metaphor of like, look at this great house that I live in as a Christian or as a, as a, as a rabbi or, you know, as a Muslim, like here, look at this really great world over here. You should, you should come like, this is awesome. You should be in this world. Um, but when we shift to thinking about us as, as sort of like in this model of, of adolescent development, where fluctuation and change is the norm and distrust among institutions is high. I think our tactic has to shift away from look at this great house that you could live in to let me help you build a house that you can live in. And we know that that's not gonna be the house that you live in forever. And practically what that means is how can you stay engaged in the conversation with them for as long as they'll have you, right? So instead of leading with these institutional ultimatums of like, this is our statement of beliefs, this is our statement of faith or whatever, this, you know, this is how the pathway to a better life. Um, I think what, the, the strategy for engaging with young people as they're building these things is to simply try to be in their orbit, in their conversations, a part of the sort of social circle that they're constructing for as long as they'll let you in. Now, at some point, 
that's going to come. I mean, it's almost certainly that's going to come down to uh, a, a sort of make or miss moment where it's, you know, they're either going to let you in completely or shut you out entirely. But I think we should be trying to, uh, rather than forefront those kinds of conversations, I think we should be trying to push them down the line so we can establish a relationship with them as somebody who cares about them. I think that's the key, right? Like, we know that God cares for us more than anything we can do for him, right? I, was, I have to always uh, remind planners that when they're like, yeah. oh, sorry, man, you know, I I know I'm in this network or, you know, because I run a network, but we're like, we don't care. Like I got one guy, he's a barber. He sets people in his barber chair. They confess all their sins to him for some reason when he's cutting <laughs> their hair. And uh, he, he joined us to get trained in planning. And uh, at a certain point, he's like, brother, I, 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 they confess their sins. I start sharing the gospel. I say, hey, we'll continue this conversation. A cigar lounge across the street this Friday night if you want to meet me. Great. They have a whiskey. They have a cigar. He leads people to Jesus. He's like, Peyton, if I shift this to a church plant and make okay. it about a church, I'm going to lose all this momentum. He goes, I'm in a church. I just keep shipping people in there. I'm an elder there. And I'm like, dude, I don't care because our thing is not to put flags. And so here, you know, let me let me kind of just broaden the picture out. Let's say I'm a young church planner. I come yeah. to a network or a denomination and they say, we'll give you X amount of dollars or, you know, this is how it goes. Right. Um, they give me a bunch of money up front. But I sign on the dotted line that I am going to give them a percentage for the life of my church. When you start doing the math, if my church survives, that's a really good deal for them. Right. <laughs> that's not a good deal for me. Right. Like the, those thousands of dollars might help me pay my bills for the next few years. So there's a huge temptation, huge incentive. Yeah. But it's it's almost like you know, I, I hate to say it this way. It's almost like a timeshare where you're like, well, these <laughs> benefits seem really good and really excited first, but down the line, you're not going to need that. What would there be a way that you could suggest, like, should these networks, organizations, denominations say, look, we're just here to help you advance the kingdom of God. If we're a good fit for you, fine. Um, do you think that kind of approach, A, is it that the organization can't operate that way, so that wouldn't work? Um, but do you believe in your conversations with people that if that were the approach, they might actually get buy-in mm -hmm. from these people because they're seeing a kingdom mindset rather than a business you know, return on investment mindset? Right. I mean, I think that the mind, you're right, the mindset is critical, but there is a, there's a financial aspect. I mean, the resources need to come from somewhere, you know, to do this kind of work, but shifting that, you know, away from, uh, I mean, that, what you, as you were describing it, what that actually sounds like to me are the people that I know who have uh, built companies and tried to attract venture capital. And like, they feel like they're losing this thing that they built by signing over so much equity. Um, and in many cases, they just, it's the, they know that they're getting, but that's a transactional world. That's what you expect in that world. This is the world of religion is a transformational world. That is not what we're after. Um, and so those kinds of relationships sort of are, I think, are harder to swallow, especially for younger people who are going to be distrustful of the institutions in the first place. I think, you know, to your point about the kingdom part, like helping people to understand, you know, what is a platform? How can I have influence? Um, the it's, it's hard, you know, just given what we know about the religious landscape and congregations, um, it's hard to imagine that being a financially sustainable model anyway, as, as pastors increasingly look to being bivocational, avocational, or whatever at best, right? Um, 
And I think it, you're right to say that like that model is probably going to need to be you know called into question, not just in terms of how we minister to young people, but how we get young people involved in ministry. Josh, I, I follow up on some of that, and there's some really good questions coming in, so I want to make sure we get to those um, as well. But um, something I'd like for you to speak on, and you started touching on it earlier, but I think it's important for many of us, especially for those of us who are, uh, whether you, I mean, whether you like to admit it or not, I mean, a lot of us are are tied to an institutional form of religion, yeah. and um, our gut instinct is that we think that as young people mature, they're going to come back into the institution. Like, there's there's a sense in which we feel like that's what we did. You know, we were punk rock uh, early on, and then eventually, now you know, we're ahead of a denomination or something like that. You know, I mean, the, uh, you know, the Jesus People movement. You know, they started off as hippies. <laughs> Yeah. And then now they're running, you know, uh, you know, bureaucratic, you know, uh, institutions. And so I think there's a sense where a lot of people think, okay, just give it 20 years and then this next generation. But there's some really huge economic shifts that actually have happened where this doesn't have to be the case for the next generation anymore. And I'd love for you to speak on what are the behaviors, because this is what I'm learning. Like my son, for instance, when he's traveling, he's he's 20. He doesn't look up, you know, where do I find Holiday Inn? Where do I? He goes to he goes to Airbnb. Yeah. He goes to Uber. There's a whole world that's decentralized, non-institutional that young people are just creating a new reality and we think they're going to come back to our luxury hotels and I'm just not sure. So, what are you seeing not just with your research but across the board behaviors that you think are probably going to be different and we should stop holding out for young people to come back and behave the way that previous generations did. Well, I think your examples are spot on. I mean, that that pattern of coming back largely exists, you know, when when there are no other options in the field. And for a long time, uh, in, in part because of the just the simple technology that's been available to people, what's the alternative to church? I mean, where can, you know, where could you in 1983 on a, you know, really count on being able to do deep meaning-making you know, existential question kind of work other than church. I can't think of what that would be off the, off the top of my head. Well, it's say 1973, even 1993. Um, it isn't until recently that we've really had the ability to connect with one another across time and space and to build places virtual and otherwise that, that could even be, you know, remotely sustainable. Um, and I don't mean sustainable for 50, 60, hundred years. I mean, sustainable for like, can I get through the season of life? Is this a community of people that will help me through college, um, through five years? And, and now we start to see the same platforms, the same technologies, the same sort of ethos that allowed those examples that you gave to spring up. We're starting to see those bubble up in, in religious spaces too. So if you look at, for example, um, the work of how we gather that came out of Harvard Divinity School Casper Turkile, he's on our advisory board, full disclosure. Um, you know, they point to things like CrossFit gyms. They point to the dinner party. Um, there's, there's a group called Nuns and Nuns. Like there's all of these little spaces popping up that now you can do this kind of work. That, and especially, especially as we already talked about with Gen Z being the most diverse ever, for marginalized groups who have had their voices squashed or completely ignored, now they have places where they can go and get together. They don't have to turn to you out of desperation. So I think that's largely uh, your, your instinct there. That's why we sort of aren't planning to see this massive return, you know, as they, you know, have kids and sort of settle in. 
plus then the economic things that you mentioned where mm. real wages have, for middle-class people have declined uh, since the early 80s in this country. We've got more uh, households with two adults working outside of the house than ever before out of necessity. And so we've got less free time. We've got less mm. energy for doing these kinds of things. And the church hasn't done a very good job of rising up to meet those economic realities. Um, it hasn't been super flexible in that regard or supportive. And so we start folding all this together and it's like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, this model wasn't designed for 2021. Yeah, I, I like that nuns and nuns. I want to see the the punks and monks. I think <laughs> yeah, I've there we go. that one, right? Um, so, uh, so one of the things that um, as I'm looking on our questions, we have one that's how can we walk the belong before believe journey so that it does not become a bait and switch scenario. Yeah. And I, I wonder if maybe Daniel and I could speak into this as well and maybe get a little conversation going on this because this this to me is is a fantastic question. Yeah, the I mean, I think pretty critically here, the model of relational authority that doesn't actually ask you to background your expertise, you know, to, to deny that you are coming at them as a professor, as a youth minister, that, that as if, you know, it doesn't ask you to pretend that that's not the reason that you're interested in their lives. Um, but it does ask you to couple that with listening first and always, and a lot, um, being transparent, showing integrity. And, and when we start to do those things, I think it doesn't feel like a bait and switch. I mean, the, the places I've done, I've seen do this successfully, like they have a clear understanding of what they're trying to do with the relationship of a young person. How are they trying to move them mm. from where they are to a flourishing relationship with God or a deeper understanding of the script, whatever it is, whatever their goals are, they're constantly trying to advance that cause, but they know that they're only going to be able to do it on the young person's timeline um, and, and through relationships. So the reason, the way it doesn't become a bait and switch is that you never pretend like there isn't some reason why you're interested in their lives. And I think that's a key piece of authenticity as well. Yeah. Daniel, what, what do you think about that? What's, what's one of the ways in your research and just things that you found or through your experience or raising a household of Gen Zers mm. um, yeah. that we can, we can encourage up long before believe. Yeah, this is, I think the, probably the most crucial thing that we could have missed a boat on in the pandemic was to actually improve the way parents communicated with children. Mm. Because I think we had for uh, 30 plus years, uh, we had a high dependency on youth programs, the institution to uh, mold behaviors and beliefs into our children. And it wasn't that, you know, in some ways, the parents saw that as their responsibility to plug in youth into a good institutional program. But when the institution was taken away, we realized hmm. that as a parent, I didn't know how to teach my children to belong. I, you know, I just, I, and, and I definitely didn't know how to teach them how to believe. I think there's something there that we have to you know, at least name it and say there's a responsibility that, that parent-child dynamic, that needs to change. Um, for those who focused on it, I feel like there is a vibrancy in young people's faith. Um, mm. I, I just, I've just heard so many stories where you know, we couldn't do church online, we or we couldn't do church in person. This you think back to you know last spring, uh, but we had some of the best Bible studies with my parents. Yeah. Like this was a a common thing that I would hear. Um, that I I hope we don't miss the boat on that. That family dynamic, I think, has a implication for the social institution of the church. 
Um, and I think in some ways it's a biblical model for us to consider. Uh, and I think that's the glue because, you know, we, we, we have developed a church culture in America where it's kind of like it's somewhat of like a la carte. Young people do youth group over here. Mm-hmm. They do concerts over here. The, it's kind of a la carte, right? There is no real um, – in, in, in some ways, we need to be okay with that. I mean, I, you know, as much as I want to see young people grounded in one a congregation, they have a bit of that a la carte mentality. But you have to ask them the question, what's the long-term glue that's going to keep them together? And it's probably going to be a couple of friends. It's probably going to be a mentor or two. But it's mm. always going to be your family. And I think for me, that's probably something that um, – and, you know, Gen Z – According to all of the uh, market research on Gen Z, there seems to be an indication that there's going to be a return to some kind of like desire for some semblance of family values, probably not defined in the same way. But part of this, they say, is because of uh, this is the generation that is uh, they, they come from the most uh, divorced homes, the most um, blended families. And so um, my guess, you know, is that if we can try to figure out how to create new family structures that have that less uh, relation or less institutional feel going back to, I mean, your big reveal, Josh, was that it's about it's about uh, relational authority, relational authority. Right. What are the structures that we can uh, develop, capitalize on? that are actually going to create relational authority in the lives of young people. I think to me, that's going to be the key mm-hmm. for the future of the church and church planting. I think as well, um, this is something that, you know, I mean, I, uh, I wrote a chapter called Samaria in, in a book called reaching the unreached where, um, it, you know, it, it, it basically focuses on the LGBT. I planted a church in the urban neighborhood in Long Beach, right, right on the Rainbow District. And during that time, um, at any one given time, in answer to this question about bait and switch, a third of our congregation was at, at some journey, you know, towards Jesus from the LGBTQ uh, lifestyle. So it, it was really diff- different because, and it was difficult because we would scratch our heads like the two lesbians come with the adopted child and you're like, okay, wh- what do I do with this? They come to faith. What, wh- what happens? Do they move out? Do they, we're asking all these questions. It was so complicated. Um, and I remember at one point, like we were obviously preaching the gospel, right? We were, tr- and, and also we understood that the church itself, that community, because the LGBT community is such a powerful community. Um, they are so supportive. Um, these people have come out of their families, been rejected, many of them by their families and been embraced by the LGBT community as a family. So we had people like we, we had a, a girl that was touring all around the United States coming out of, she had been a stripper and a, and a, um, a lesbian stripper and, you know, other things and was touring around sharing her testimony with this man called the whosoever's. And she, um, you know, she was telling us, look, this is this is the power of the church. Kind of Francis Chan's gang thing that if you come out of a gang, you know, you, you, you need the church needs to be stronger. And one of the things we found was the church, you know, looking at Jesus and even the, the gospel of Acts, their um, community was an evangelistic tool. They cared for those. They embraced those who didn't believe yet. Um, and I think Jesus's approach is going to, you know, uh, Matthew, the tax collector's house 
And having dinner with him was a way of embracing him, letting him belong before he fully believed. And so I think, you know, uh, even even the 12, like at what point did they believe he was the Christ, the Messiah? Like, at what point did they become believers? You know, you, you look at that even theologically, that's a head scratcher. But Jesus is embracing them and choosing them before they're ready to be chosen. And it's just kind of a, a, a thing where what, what we found is we just baptism was always kind of the cutoff for us. Mm-hmm. Like we would just lay down what baptism meant. And that was the way it wasn't a bait and switch. It was just the natural progression of the gospels. You know, when you believe you get baptized and um, and this is what baptism means. It means that your old life is done. You're, so we found that really helpful in answer to the question as far as like, how do you keep it from a bait and switch? It's not a bait and switch. It's just you're not. You're not until you're baptized, you haven't fully declared that I am Christ and he is mine and I am living a new life. But we embrace people even before that, you know, but if somebody wasn't a Christian, obviously you don't you can't put them under discipline, but you can talk to them, you know. So that's kind of it. But I don't have all the answers on that. And we're running out of time. So, uh, oh, go ahead, Daniel. I I want to I mean, it's it's, it's so, so important. So many important things there in. Uh, Josh, this, putting you under the gun, all right? Because I'm going to give you one minute because we do have to wrap this up. And sorry, folks, you have great questions. We didn't get to them all, and maybe we just need to have Josh back. But um, just you, know, you did some work early on about church refugees, young people leaving the church. Hmm. Uh, we just, we don't have enough time to unpack all that. But as you're thinking about that, and you're you know that our audience are pastors, people are leading churches based on. Your current research, what you did before, you know, uh, in um, in church refugees, what would you say uh, we need to focus in on? What's one thing that you would say this is you need to really consider this as you're leading your church towards the future? I think it's pretty. I mean, for me, that's pretty clear. That the I know it can really feel like you're doing nothing to sit and listen to a young person. But we have our own podcast called The Voices of Young People. And and they've told us there, they've told us in interviews, they've told us in our young person's advisory board and all over the place that they're the dominant experience of a young person when it comes to adults, no matter what they're talking about, is of being dismissed and disregarded. So even though I know it can feel like you're doing nothing and how I know how hard it is, I've done it myself to sit there and listen to a young person tell you about the things they're doing in their life and they're destructive and you want to correct them and you want to be like, you should not date that guy or you should not take that job or that's not a good major for you. You want to correct, but you're not doing nothing. The listening is the first and and most important constant thing that you can do because if you don't do that part, they'll let you tell them what to do. They just won't do it. Right. You'll never get to the, to the like to, to the authority part, the expertise part, if you're not doing the listening part first and always. Well, hey, it's it's been awesome. We want to thank all of you for joining us today. And on behalf of Exponential, let me thank both Josh and you as our guest today and for enriching our conversation with your questions. I want to thank my co-host. Daniel Yang, who uh, it's always fun. Gosh, it does seem like we haven't seen each other uh, in forever, but uh, always good, man. Good to be back in the saddle. So we know that one of us is not Elvis or Batman. We're in the same place at the same time. So uh, with that, really quickly, uh, there is a fantastic way you can help mobilize more people in your own church and network coming up in the spring. 
You, yes, you, my friend, can host an exponential roundtable event for your church, your city, or your tribe or small group. Learn more about becoming a host this spring at multiplication.org forward slash host. All right. Again, on behalf of Exponential, let me thank you for joining us today. Our guest has been Josh Packard, and he has been sharing his thoughts with us today. And we want to thank you one more time, Josh. Where is it that they can connect uh, with you guys as an organization? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been really great. Um, We're at springtideresearch.org, and I'm on Twitter at Dr. Josh Packard. All right, don't forget to grab that free resource that's linked in the chat, and we'll see you next time.